If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. The way that we're changing the ocean acoustically impacts upon the ability of the whales to hear one another and to some extent, in the case of sperm whales, to hunt for prey because they use the biosonar to locate their prey. So we are certainly impacting upon whale culture and not just during the era of whaling when we were removing large old whales from the sea, presumably some of the most experienced singers, but today when we're also changing the context in which they sing. Today we're speaking with Rebecca Giggs, an award-winning author from Perth, Australia. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Emergence, The New York Times Magazine, Granta, and in anthologies including Best Australian Essays and Best Australian Science Writing. Rebecca's nonfiction focuses on how people feel towards animals in a time of technological and ecological change. And her debut book is Fathoms, The World in the Whale. The whale family is an extraordinarily diverse clade of animals. You have everything from toothed whales like orca or killer whales, as we call them here, all the way to the largest animal on the face of the planet, the blue whale. So they all have different kinds of ways of living in the world, different family structures, different acoustic environments that they live in, the way they sing, different kinds of diets. But among the most interesting things that I I learned in the course of the research for Fathoms, I'll give you a few little stories. One has to do with a kind of whale called a beaked whale, which is in its body shape a little bit like a dolphin, but sort of much larger and more kind of barrel shaped. 
Beaked whales are best thought of as very deep sea living whales. They only really surface to breathe. Some of them spend hours, many kilometres beneath the ocean surface hunting. So they live in darkness. They live in an acoustic environment that I guess that their sensory acuity is really honed to interactions in sound. They hunt by biosonar. They communicate with one another under the water. Scientists have been really interested for a long time now about the shape of the beaked whale's skull. It has all these weird bumps and crenulations and flutings on it, quite unusual for a, a marine mammal. So the exterior of the animal's head is smooth, but the, the skull is quite idiosyncratic. And one theory for why that might be is that their biosonar allows them to effectively see inside the bodies of one another. So it's not just that they're bouncing their echo waves off the surface of objects underwater, but in the case of interacting with other whales, they're actually able to apprehend one another's skeletons. And if that's the case, then it may be that these interestingly shaped skulls are almost acting in the same way as the antlers of reindeer. They're a kind of competitive display, effectively, that the males have and that they're, that they're capable of sensing. So I thought that was sort of stupendous because it speaks to ways of interacting as animals that are so different from the ways that humans as a highly visually emphasizing species, as a, as a really ocular species, it, it's such a different way of imagining interaction through sound. The other thing that I will say about whale voices is that I was interested to learn that whale voices are changing since the 1960s, the voices of blue whales have dropped the equivalent of three white notes on a piano. They're getting deeper. And there are different reasons for why that might be so. Some people say optimistically that there are simply more blue whales in the sea now and they no longer have to yell to hear one another. For a few different morphological reasons, when a whale is louder, it's at a higher pitch, just simply the way that the whale's anatomy works. So if they're being quieter, then their voices are going to drop a bit. Other people say that simply because the ocean is becoming slightly more acidic across time and a, a more acidic ocean carries sound waves further, the whales are able to communicate over a longer distance using less effort and less volume, but that that speaks to the degradation of the environment rather than simply our conservation efforts boosting those populations. So yeah, there are two examples having to do with two different kinds of whales and sound. And something else that I hadn't known before was how intricately connected whales are to the atmosphere. And this becomes especially important as the conditions of climate change and Earth's atmospheric imbalances become more severe. So beyond how climate change has been affecting whales, which I think tends to be the directionality of the narrative, which we will get into a little later, but I would love it if you could introduce us to the role of whales on the climate and on the atmospheric health of our planetary body. I had always thought of whales as being animals that were locked into their marine environment. So they mm. die and they fall to the bottom of the ocean floor and there they're decayed and pecked at by all kinds of 
weird deep sea animals. And they participate in marine food webs. You know, they eat little crustaceans, they eat krill or they eat fish. I had no idea that there was this interesting ecological balance happening between the activity of whales and the chemical composition of the air. And the way it works is this, really large whales, and most particularly what we know as the baleen whales, so those that have sort of pleated throats like an accordion, the surface of an accordion, as well as the sperm whales, which are the animals you commonly see on the front cover of Moby Dick, the ones with the really big blocky heads and big teeth, squid eaters. These big whales tend to feed at depth. They dive down, they chase squid, they get food from the lower surfaces of the sea, and then they move back up to the surface of the sea. And in the process of resurfacing, they drag up some organic matter from the slower moving layers of the ocean up towards the, they call them the photic layers, the layers where the sun penetrates. But they do another thing as well. They literally move nutrients. So you imagine they eat at depth, but it's not until they come to the surface that they defecate. And they do that because their bodily functions under pressure, you know, that they're kind of released as they come to the surface and they're under less pressure. And they release these like wafty, you know, in the case of sperm whales, these these huge kind of um, manure on the surface of the of the ocean. In an ocean that's very nutrient poor, that manure is acting as this amazing catalyst to instigate the growth of phytoplankton. And, you know, these tiny little algae that populate the sea, kind of like stardust. Plankton is responsible for the absorption of carbon dioxide and the emission of oxygen on a scale that actually is greater than the world's rainforests. It is this amazing carbon capture and storage mechanism. It's also, as I say, an oxygen emitter. So the activity of whales is kind of like a pump that's feeding the growth of plankton in the open ocean. And there have been studies to show that when we depleted the number of whales, we also affected that growth of these microscopic plants in a way that can be reflected in the chemical composition of the air. It's so interesting to think about animals not just as passive victims of anthropogenic climate change, but actually as a key mechanism in the repair or in the stabilization of our environment. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the interplay between a species and how they do reflect their environment as products of their environment and at the same time as co-creators of their environments as well with their own agency and how they contribute to shaping their landscapes or their waterways and so forth. Mm. And in our past conversation about the different energy transitions and later energy use expansions, I recall us having touched on how whale oil was critical to help fuel the earlier stages of industrialization. But I'd love for you to elaborate more on how industry reflects an intimacy with the whale's body, as in how did industrialization drive the practice of whaling? And on the flip side, how did whaling and all the various products from their bodies change or accelerate industry? Sure. In the 19th century, our forebears lived in constant close proximity with 
products that had come from the whale's body. So that might be whale oil, which was used as a industrial lubricant in manufacturing. So both in textile factories, leatherwork factories, and other industrial factories. It might be products that were made from the baleen of whales. Baleen is kind of like a fibrous substance that some whales have in their mouths where we would have teeth and kind of like a mustache inside your upper lip. And it has this pliability to it that when it's heated, it can be shaped and turned into all manner of different commodities. So it was used in women's corsetry famously. It was also used in medical supplies. It was used in furniture stuffing, the springs in watches, police batons. It it was used basically as the thermoplastic of the era, moulded into all different kinds of products. And then finally, a certain kind of whale oil, particularly this, this sort of creamy whale oil that came out of the heads of sperm whales, was used as a illuminator and was put into lamps and made into candles and basically was the means of illuminating the factory floor to extend the working day. So whaling really isn't just a commercial product. It's also the context in which industry takes its modern shape. And I mean that by the sense that whale oil allowed for automation. Whale oil in the form of an illuminant allowed for the extension of trading hours, both on the shop floor and on the factory floor. And it also brought on the age of consumer culture in the form of these different sorts of thermoplastic-esque commodities as well. So really, you know, that that It wasn't just one product amongst many. It was the early form of the extractive industry age that we live in now. Yeah, and this is super important because I don't think enough of us realize how integral whaling was to our history and to realizing the industrial world that a lot of people live as a part of today. And I recently spoke with Tom Van Doren, another brilliant author who's looked at various species endangerment and extinctions. And in our conversation, we had highlighted how the culture of the Hawaiian crow had been compromised after their species endangerment and then attempts to breed them and raise them in captivity because the same cause and place-based knowledges and behaviors of how to live and find food and avoid dangers in their non-captive habitats haven't been able to be passed on in the same ways to the newborns raised in entirely different environments, which has made it more difficult for them to be successfully reintroduced to their ancestral habitats. But this idea about the culture of various communities of animals and not just cultures applying to humans only, that's something that has been really fascinating to me. And you touched on this earlier with the changes in the voice of particular species of whales, but I wonder what else you've thought through or learned in terms of how industrial activities or climate change may have changed the cultures of whale species. That's a fantastic question. And Ed Van Doren is just a beautiful writer on the subject of animal cultures. When I spoke to whale researchers, they drew a line between some species of whales and others. So famously, sperm whales, which are very long-lived, 
very brainy animals and seem to have different kinds of dialects between groups of sperm whales. They're actually called clans rather than pods in this case, are thought to have a culture that evolves across time. The same is also true certainly in the oral expressions of humpback whales. The humpback whales that you hear recorded on records from the 1970s are not singing in the same way that the humpback whales today do. Their songs evolve and they even have sort of seasonal trends where a particular motif, almost like an advertising jingle, will get kind of stuck in the voice of one whale and others will begin repeating it and they'll carry it out across ocean basins. Almost like a whale pop song, actually. It it will kind of lap the globe in the course of a year. And they tend to move towards greater complexity until it gets to the point where you know, to be a virtuosic humpback whale singer, you're really pushing the edge of your ability. And then it seems like suddenly a singer comes along who's singing a very simple song and that stands out. Scientists actually call them cultural revolutions when this this big change in humpback song takes place. So I was fascinated to learn that, yeah, that in the larger whale species, there are distinct traditions or or cultures, I suppose you would call them, that pass through generations. And of course, the way that we're changing the ocean acoustically impacts upon the ability of the whales to hear one another. And to some extent, in the case of sperm whales, to hunt for prey because they use the biosonar to locate their prey. So we are certainly impacting upon whale culture and not just during the era of whaling when we were removing large old whales from the sea, presumably some of the most experienced singers, but today when we're also changing the context in which they sing. Mm. And before we take a step back, and perhaps this is also an invitation to that as well, one of the most jarring, at first metaphoric, but in reality, quite literal things that we know is how we've actually or yeah, people have actually discovered various elements representing the world in the whale, which speaks to the title of your book as well. Can you share more about this and how your view of pollution from so-called byproducts of industry has been challenged and has evolved? And then to extend that further, what we know about how the pollutants from industrial regions have made their ways through whales to places farthest away from their origins. When I originally went down and saw this humpback whale that had stranded in Western Australia, I didn't have in my mind that I would write a narrative nonfiction book about that topic. I was actually working on some short fiction, so I had thought that that whale would turn up in a short story. Mm. And I kept notes and I thought about it for a while and I played around with it in a few different contexts. But eventually I put that idea down and it wasn't until a few years later when I read a news story that I began to realise that actually what I had in mind was something much more factual. The news story was a report from Spain where a sperm whale had washed up on the coast. This one had died in the open ocean and then its body had washed up. And scientists had done a necropsy on the animal to look at why it died. Mm. 
So humans get an autopsy and (laughs) whales and other animals get a necropsy. They looked at the stomach contents of the animal and what they found inside it was stupendous to me. They found an entire greenhouse this animal had swallowed. So all this bundle of burlap and flower pots and hose pipes and sheeting, plastic sheeting from a greenhouse. This isn't far from the greenhouse district in Spain, which is known as the kind of salad bowl of Europe, where a lot of vegetables are grown over winter in that part of of Europe. So perhaps it's not surprising that that kind of agricultural waste would end up between the whale and its world. But to me, I read that story and I thought to myself, you know, if I was to put that in fiction, a whale, this amazing icon of the 1980s environmental movements, turning up with a greenhouse, like literally the metaphor that we use to describe the climate era, the greenhouse effect, turning up with a greenhouse inside it, I would be doing something really leaden and sort of clumsy. But here it was actually happening in the real world. You know, one of those cases where the truth is stranger than fiction. So I I got interested in that question of even though whales are this mysterious animal and very remote from us living lives in an entirely different medium to us, that they are returning to us evidence of our consumer culture. And there are whales that have washed up now that have been found to have in their stomachs such a weird plethora of objects, things from pairs of jeans to golf balls to cases from DVDs. They're really kind of an archive of the human culture and I guess a kind of jettisoned set of desires, you know, and fashions and things that have turned up inside of Wales. But in terms of that question of how far that influence has spread, not only as material objects, but also as the trace of pollutants, whales are very fatty animals. So they of course, because they need to regulate their internal temperature and they live in some cases in quite cold environments. They have this layer of blubber around their bodies that's kind of insulating them. And so when they encounter the kinds of industrial runoff that comes off agricultural areas, pesticides, herbicides, those kinds of chemicals, those kinds of chemicals tend to be quite lipophilic as in they suspend well in fat. So these animals will collect chemical ballast both from their diet and also from simply exposure in the water, and it will stay in their their fat. In some cases, it's quite metabolically stable, so it doesn't kind of circulate back into the body. It's, It's sequestered into this fat layer. But the one sort of vulnerable moment in a whale's life cycle where it does kind of get re-exposed to this chemical ballast it's carrying is in pregnancy and birth. So some whales will discharge that chemical ballast to their firstborn young and that firstborn may be a, a weaker animal or an animal that's likely to die. They'll also pass it through their breast milk as well. Now you can imagine for traditional peoples living up in the Arctic who consume whale meat, not sort of irregularly, but in some seasonal instances as a cornerstone of their diet, if they're eating the fat from beluga and narwhal and 
other wild species up there as part of a traditional food source, they will also take on that chemical ballast. And so um, there were studies done to show that certain Arctic peoples had a higher kind of chemical freight and particularly in breast tissue because that's where the chemicals tend to collect in the human body. So, yeah, we think of these places as incredibly far from sites of industry and those people as living lives in strong connection with nature and traditional diets, but in many cases they're also still encountering the leftovers of of agrochemicals elsewhere. Right. Really just goes to show how interconnected the Earth's various systems and communities are. Mm. Something that stood out to me was when you shared in the in past interviews about how it's more difficult for you and many other people, I would relate to this as well, to be able to empathize with something like the changing biosphere on that level or melting ice caps because it can feel too large in dimension to wrap our heads around. And so this has led you to ponder how we might tell global stories now that can unite and draw in empathy from more people across borders the same way that the whale was able to for being able to spark collective care for the ocean. And I think what I'm curious about is this interplay between finding charismatic, emblematic creatures that people might find easier to empathize with to unite more people versus inspiring an expansion and decentering of our capacities for empathy from the human or the human-like. Because I also wonder whether our inability or inability for most people to empathize with something like melting ice caps or even mountaintop mining and so forth doesn't necessarily come from the scale per se, but rather because our cultural stories and histories and upbringing aren't rooted in those specific places. Because I can imagine that those whose livelihoods depend on ice and are interwoven with glaciers, maybe their cultural stories, spirituality and histories and so forth, would be able to empathize with the disappearance of ice much more than other people might. And then just to toss in another element here, I'm aware there also has been critiques about what it means that it often takes charismatic animals like the polar bear to get people to care about climate change when at the same time black brown indigenous and other disenfranchised communities right within or much closer to where we are have been facing disproportionate impacts from the same things pollution climate change environmental injustice and so forth so a lot here but i'm curious what comes to mind most immediately for you Yes, that, that's a fantastic way to draw together a few of the themes in the book. Thank you for that. I think that when I say it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the large-scale terraforming of the globe that's taking place in the form of sea ice loss or I suppose the more intangible and non-sensory but nonetheless weather-accelerating change in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Mm. Perhaps I mean less that it's easily, it's not, it's not dismissible, I guess, because we can't wrap our heads around it, but it is humiliating in the way that it can defeat the impulse for action because there is simply so much grief bundled with the events of you know, the disappearance of the glaciers and the 
molecular level on which we've changed things as well. And so the whale was this wonderful Trojan horse in a way as an animal that is trans-hemispheric, you know, it, it migrates from the poles to the tropics, it speaks across ocean basins, it's embedded in deep time because its evolutionary history stretches further back than our own and so it became possible to talk about the past in a way using the whale that was really interesting to me. Um, but at the same time, I do also wrestle with that question of reifying charisma of big animals and kind of, you know, falling into default modes of we need something to be human enough, as in, you know, whales are sort of social and they have languages and they have families and they're, they're almost sportive, you know, they're playful. And that that is a kind of grounds for empathy because, of course, that's a really problematic notion if we're going to protect the environment at large that we identify first and foremost with the, the most human elements of it. One of the projects of Fathoms was really to try to get into the whale as an ecological being. So thinking about, I, I sort of had this phrase in my head from Gary Snyder when I was writing the book, and he, he says something like, I'm going to misphrase this, but he says that life is not just the property of the big charismatic animals, but it, it's also anaerobic, it's cannibalistic, it's about decay, it's about the deathliness that's in life. And so at the very beginning of the book, I do have this sequence or scene about the decay of the animal on the deep sea and the way in which the whale's body, even after life, is kind of like a springtime and it energizes these deep sea ecologies and creates this, this huge energy boost. And I guess that story that I told a minute ago about industrial pollutants moving through the body of the whale is also putting a networked or ecological lens on the animal rather than treating it as important or impactful just because it's an animal that we've historically invested with a certain amount of character. You've also written about less charismatic creatures like the bogong moth, if I pronounce that correctly. So you I want to pivot to your piece titled The Noiseless Messenger, in which you follow the mass migration of the bogong moth in Alpine, Australia, which is a story of super abundance and apocalypse. And from the piece, you write... The moth's habitat has not disappeared, taking the moth along with it. What has changed, what is changing, is that the topographic features of the landscape coded into the bogong's migratory instincts are decoupling from the climatic conditions necessary for the moth to complete its life cycle, end quote. And then also to further illustrate this message, later in the piece you write, Though we customarily speak of needing to save a habitat to save a species, Per those animals that move in vast numbers, the opposite is also true. The preservation of habitat, its energetic balance, pivots on the transient animals that pass through it. A depletion of migratory animals can be a force as atrophying as plunging the land into darkness, end quote. First of all, this was just so beautifully written. And seeing as both the bogong moth and various species of whales 
as well are migratory creatures, though maybe at different scales and levels. I'd be curious to hear you expand on what you've thought through in terms of what the disruption of migratory pathways for various creatures has meant for these beings, whether emotionally, culturally, again, with how that then shapes their environments differently or otherwise. Mm, That's a lovely question. Thank you for bringing those pieces together. Since I finished Fathoms, I've written about leeches, I've written about spiders, I've written about (laughs) moths. I feel like I've gone in and snails as well. I've I've gone to the micro mini fauna since I left the mega fauna. So it is interesting to think about the question of animal migration and energetic inputs into environments all the way across the scale of this interesting little migratory moth we have on the east coast of Australia to the humpback whales that we see traveling in the ocean. The bogon moth used to be massively abundant, so much so that it literally darkened the skies. Think passenger pigeon, but with an Australian inflection. I had wanted for a while to write a story about what is globally known as the insect Armageddon, a phrase coined by the journalist Brooke Jarvis. And I'd been looking for a Southern Hemisphere story to explore that question of the kinds of insect depletions that we're seeing worldwide. And the bogong moss was just such a, well, a kind of gift to a writer because the scale of it is immediately apparent. And it's in within living memory that people remember the migration and the way in which you'd have to sweep them off your porch every day when they died in their light fixtures on on the veranda or uh yeah they they there are stories about a garden party in government house and all the moths getting stuck in the icing on the cakes or federal buildings having to shut down their elevators because the the mechanism of the elevators is so jammed with moth bodies and of course that stretches way back to indigenous traditional knowledge as well that there was a period in which alpine indigenous australians would have collected moth bodies and cooked them in ashes and then created a kind of durable paste that was formed into patties and was a food that could be transported and lasted a long time. At any length, there are two reasons that the bogon moth population collapsed, and it has collapsed in recent years by 99%, huge disappearance. One of them has to do with drought in the areas where the animals pupate in the agricultural fields, and then one of them has to do with the changing climate of the actual destination of their migration, which is caves up in the top of mountains in the Brindabellas and the Victorian Alps. And so they're losing their habitat, not because of anything like deforestation or ocean acidification. They're losing it simply because the temperature is changing and they're either not emerging as as pupae or they're, they're not making it to their, once they get to Alpine Australia, they're not finding the cold caves that they used to over summer in. It's a complicated story because it it runs counter to a few traditional understandings of animal migration in the Northern Hemisphere. So these are animals that migrate to escape the summer, the heat of the summer, rather than hibernating over winter. 
Um, and simply sort of the scale of it is, yeah, it's immense. But I, I learned a lot about the ways in which tiny bits of life, you know, like insect life, are responsible for these huge flows of energy and genes as well between plants, like DNA flows. Yeah, it it, it opened my eyes to that question of the transience of insect life as well. So it was a it was a pleasure to write that piece. Yeah, and there are also people of various cultures who historically were migratory, but in present day haven't been able to in the same ways with the introduction of things like private property or national borders and so on. So just as food for thought, as an extension, I'd be keen to consider how the inability for people to migrate in those same numbers in the same ways might have affected the landscapes that those migratory pathways used to shape. There have been native title cases up in, or equivalent, what would it be called in the top of Canada? It's Indigenous land rights cases, but to do with migratory entitlement in areas where ice has disappeared and the terrain has changed. So I, I think there are kind of precedents for for people kind of challenging the right to migrate as a in the context of a climate changed environment. But I do know there's a good there's a good book coming out on climate migration called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. So it's specifically focused on the ways in which climate is impacting migration within the US. And it's written by Jake Biddle, who's an author whose work is really powerful and well worth checking out. I want to prompt the closing of our main conversation with this hauntedness that you talk about. As you say, what is most cryptic about animals in this moment, many people suspect, are things we cannot yet gauge about our own impacts on their habitats and their bodies. The ability to identify damage is lapped by the ability to do damage. We stand in the wake of something we cannot yet comprehend. What is at the heart of an animal governing its behavior may reveal itself in time not to be a compelling mystery, but instead a shameful familiarity, the rubble of the marketplace still displaying its trademarks or the polluted air. Our fear is that the unseen spirits that move in them are ours, end quote. With this said, what are some final lessons that you've learned that you wish to pass along to us here? And what is a call to action or a deeper inquiry that you'd like to close on? When I wrote that passage about hauntedness, I was thinking about an old way of understanding animals that we've really inherited from antiquity, from the Romans, which was that we used to look to animals as moral prompts. And we can imagine a time in which the behavior of flocks of birds or, you know, there used to be healers who would look through the entrails of animals to see messages like, should I go to war? Should I get married? And also, I guess, a, a sort of palimpsest of information that arrived from a spiritual dimension. At that point, we thought that it was something godly that moved in animals. And now it seems again that animals have returned to us as moral messengers. But this time, we fear that actually the message they're bringing has something to do with our own culpability for global change. Mm -hmm. And when we see an animal that's migrating in a new way into a new habitat or behaving in a new way or perhaps there's a surge of invasive species or there's a decline of a, a local species, endemic species, 
then we wonder, is there something going on here that we are responsible for that we've not yet fully gauged the magnitude of? And that's a really interesting space to be in. I think we're sort of at this place where the natural world has moral meaning again, and therefore there are ways into thinking about the natural world that exceed the scientific and are more to do with our connections to one another and our ability to, well, I guess our responsibility in imagining the future. I think that in terms of a final takeaway message for the book, you know, there's one very direct to camera moment where I talk about hope and it's quite stylistically unique in the book because I don't, while I'm a kind of active narrator moving around, having experiences and describing scenes, this is a book that's written two steps back from any particular activist agenda the reason for that is I wanted people, I want it to be a kind of place where you can consolidate your nerve. I didn't want there to be like a step-by-step instructional, like if you feel moved by this book, you should go to do X, Y, Z. I'd much rather that people had a look at their local communities, maybe also did an accounting of their particular talents and resources and privileges and what they have to bring to the fight and then really thought about how can I engage if I feel moved to action in a way that nourishes me. So like maybe you're like really great at spreadsheets. That's what you that's what you do. That's what you've got. Well, the best thing that you could do would be to donate like half a day doing some office admin doing <laughs> for, for an NGO, right? Or maybe you're someone who is a real outdoors person. Maybe then the best thing for you to do is kind of going down to the beach and engaging with groups that collect litter. You've got you've got to work in the streamline of the things that you enjoy and that you're good at because it's very easy to burn out <laughs> in uh, any kind of activist undertaking. So I think, you know, trying to work within your talents, try to see change on the level of like, two to five years, you know, like not trying to have the the long shot goal of saving the earth, but having a two to five year goal of trying to do move inch forward an issue or save something that's close to you. Yeah. Working in the service of your talents, because at the end of the day, I do believe that hope doesn't come from like, it's not an intellectual process. It's actually in the doing it's not about like finding hope from reading a book or having an inspirational experience. Hope comes from action. Hope comes from making yourself useful. And in fact, I don't think you are entitled to hope until you make yourself useful. And I think that inversion was really, for my own self, has been really, um, yeah, formative. You said you think that you would rather be on your own then have to wait and watch another one you love go You're getting used to moving through your days all alone Why mess it up now? You're going tired of watching your own heart shatter You create and decisions beating and Seems to matter
What's been one of the most impactful books or publications that you've engaged with? I read a lot of magazine journalism. I think that the New York Times magazine is doing a terrific job with animal stories at the moment. Uh, the journalists that I'd look for there are Sam Anderson and Brooke Jarvis. I particularly like Catherine Schultz when she writes at the New Yorker about animals as well. So um, she writes about animal navigation, actually. Weather, insects, taxonomy. She's really great. But a book this year, I had the pleasure of rereading the Rachel Carson C trilogy, which has been re released by the Library of America as this beautiful hardback, her three books on the ocean, which I've actually just finished reviewing for the New York Review of Books. And just such a pleasure to go back to those rich, amazing. Works of environmental conscience, but even before she wrote Silent Spring, the ocean books are just, they're just the scale of attention in them and the lyricism. I even think the last one, interestingly, so she has three, but the last one is focused on rock pools. I think it'd make a lovely gift for a young adult who's interested in nature, if you're looking for Christmas presents at this point of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very sort of, it's just charming. It's just charming and and beautifully scientifically literate. What is a motto, mantra, or practice that helps you to stay grounded? I, in 2022, this is something very minor, but I started keeping an audio journal and, I, you know, I'm not much of a journaler usually, but at the end of the day now, I have a sort of voice to text app on my phone. And I just spend five minutes kind of reviewing the day, particularly around my writing and what I struggled with or what I achieved or, and sort of looking back at that audio journal has been really helpful for me thinking about how I plan big projects, how I stay buoyant through creative projects. Yeah. I would say that that's something that's sort of kept me on track Yeah. I I mean, I also do a lot of yoga, which is helpful for me, but perhaps not for everybody. (laughs) Mm. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? As you'll be aware, in 2021, we had a series of lockdowns in Australia and I was in Melbourne at that point. So we went through, I believe it was the world's longest lockdown with like a five kilometre radius and no leaving the house, all of that, which was very strenuous. But during that time, I joined a wildlife rescue volunteering charity as a means of, I guess, engaging with other people and with animals at a time when we couldn't really go very far, which meant that within the kind of five kilometre radius of home, I was going out every so often with my little fluorescent jacket on to help if a possum was trapped in someone's garage or a, you know, large lizards that we have here, these blue tongue lizards or wombats that have been injured and ferrying them between veterinarians and sanctuaries. And I mentioned that because as a source of inspiration, 
just even being on the phone network for that job where you kind of, you get a text that says, can someone help with a cockatoo in uh, this suburb? And then you get a response from somebody else on another suburb saying, I'm on my way to the cockatoo. And <laughs> and it was lovely in terms of just realising that there are all these ordinary people who in the corners of their days when they're not working are engaging with our native fauna and are, you know, dedicating time and space and resources to the individual animals in cities and urban fringes. And yeah, so that that was a real pleasure and actually counteracted, Mm -hmm. I guess, a lot of that difficult time. Right. Really beautiful. Well, to our listener, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Rebecca's work, you can head to www.rebeccagigs.com and we'll, of course, have more links and references from this episode shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I come back to that point about hope being in the doing and that if you're finding the environmental sphere at the moment a space of anxiousness and of sadness, that the answer to that is not to look for the remedy in, you know, the the kind of lofty idea space. It's to get active. It's to find some small way of doing some small local action and you'll connect with other people in that space who are feeling in the same way this episode of green dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you to make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show you can head to greendreamer.com support Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Eye of the Storm by Ali Deneen. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.